0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All
1: right. <clears throat> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Lab.
2: Radio Lab from WNYC. See? Yep. Previously being chased by the police. Oh, wow. Yeah. They say he was with all these very bad people, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, directly associated with Osama bin Laden. Is it possible that he was just running with the wrong people? These are the worst of the worst. Abdul Latif's going to get out. He's, he's clear, he's clear. And he will have a window when he comes here. I'm Latif Nasser, and this is The Other Latif. Episode 3, Sudan. When we last left Abdul Latif Nasser, he was adrift. He was in his mid-20s, his mom had died. He would dropped out of school. He'd moved to Libya to make some money, but he was broke. His dreams of studying and teaching science were fading. So he makes a decision to move again, this time to Sudan. And Muhammad Adawi, in our last episode suggested maybe that's where it happened.
3: Sudan probably is your best bet, you know, to find out where and how...
2: And if...
3: The individual was radicalized.
2: So that's the spot to pay attention to, you think? Yeah. The reason he said that had to do with timing. Abdul Latif set foot in Sudan in 1993. And around that time...
3: What is an Islamic state? An Islamic state... Is a state that is not only Islamic at its
0: private level, but also at at the level of public life.
2: There had been a coup in Sudan, and a new government stepped in. And the most powerful person in this new government was a man named... Dr. Hassan Turabi. Hassan Turabi.
0: Man seen as the architect of the Sudanese Islamic State. Islam is a, a
3: comprehensive way of life. Turabi had a great vision for his Islamic revolution in Sudan. Suleiman Baldo, former professor
2: at the University of Khartoum.
3: Hassan al-Turabi, he founded a congress which was open to all extremist, jihadist, revolutionary groups seeking change against their respective governments.
2: He basically invited the extremists of the world to come to
3: Sudan and join like a club. The loose alliance of all the jihadi groups. Uh, Palestinians and... Hamas
4: and Hezbollah and international criminals like...
3: Carlos... Carlos the Jackal. The Jackal of uh, of France. Saddam Hussein sent people to to Khartoum.
2: Journalists Peter Bergen and Lawrence Wright. Was Sudan in the mid-90s kind of like the Berkeley in the 60s for Islamism kind of thing? Yeah, I
4: I think that's exactly right. It was a, a convocation of different radical Islamist groups. I wouldn't have been surprised if they played intramural soccer with each other. The uh, that's what <laughs> Al Qaeda had two teams, and they would play on after the mosque on Fridays. Oh,
2: you're not even kidding! You like that's for real.
4: Oh yeah, yeah.
2: I kind of imagine it as an upside down United Nations. Instead of embassies representing the governments of all these different countries, it was like you had groups from each of those different countries who wanted to overthrow those governments. So. The mere fact that Abdul Latif Nasser went to Sudan at the precise moment when all these extremists were flocking to the country, you could see that as suspicious. According to government documents, and his lawyer disputes this point, for the first few weeks in Sudan, Abdul Latif Nasser joined a Muslim missionary group, a kind of uh, Muslim Jehovah's Witnesses. He did that, allegedly, for 45 days. And then he set off in search of what the government calls, quote, the perfect Islamic society.
5: It's always a little amusing to me how the government will characterize uh, any period of time. Um,
2: (laughs) That's Abdul Latif's lawyer, Shelby Sullivan-Bennis.
5: As far as I am aware and believe, that is not an appropriate description of his time in Sudan.
2: She says, yeah, he may have been longing for purpose, may have been gradually turning to Islam. But the main reason he went to Sudan was to work. And that's what he ended up doing. He ended up finding a job in the middle of nowhere on a farm.
5: Um, So Sudan was actually the place um, where he was overseeing the farming of sunflowers.
2: Sunflowers?
5: Yeah. He was doing the sunflower farming, although... I um <laughs> I was advised by him multiple times that he was not he's not actually a farmer himself and per, like possesses no skills in that regard. That's he was funny. Managing sort of from above, um, making sure people had enough resources and uh, enough people on the field and and this
2: is for the flowers or the oil or the seeds or the I think I it really was the
5: seeds. They were growing. Yeah. Sunflowers kind of in in a field and there I think there were others surrounding it, but that was he was the sunflower man. Hmm. Yeah, (laughs) Um, which I thought was pretty endearing.
2: I listen to this interview now, and I'm like, ugh, idiot. I was so into the idea of the seeds and the process that I forgot to ask a pivotal question. Who were those sunflowers being farmed for? After that conversation, I did some research and ended up bringing it up with Shelby again in a later interview. Moved to Sudan and was also
5: job based.
2: I think you told me that he worked at a sunflower farm. He was like, you know, like a not farming per se, but like you know, in like a management y type mm-hmm. position. Um, was that Osama bin Laden's farm?
5: So there's a distinction between information, information that I know, information I don't know, and information that is either classified or declassified that the client has told me. So I, I think I can't answer that question at all, annoyingly. I'm sorry.
3: Okay.
2: Yeah, I think he worked on Osama bin Laden's farm. So, at about the age of 29, Abdul Latif Nasser is on the payroll of Osama bin Laden. The guy who ordered planes to fly into the World Trade Center in the Pentagon. The guy that the government would later allege, Abd Nasser, became an important military advisor to. Which does not look good. But if you stop to think about it, what does that even mean that he was working on Osama bin Laden's farm? Was that a real farm? Or was it a front? What was he doing there? When I first started reporting, these seemed to be straightforward, answerable questions. But yeah, that's not what they were at all.
6: Talking, saying, Hi, BBC, I can BBC. hear you. Hello. Hear hello. <laughs> hello, hello, we hear you. Hello, this is Kathy. Can you hear me? Hello.
2: First thing you immediately discover when you talk to people who scrutinized Osama bin Laden's life, people like, Kathy Scott-Clark.
6: I wrote a book called The Exile, which was a story of the last 10 years of Osama bin Laden.
2: And people like Lawrence Wright. I'm an author and a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine. Is that during his Sudan years, approximately 1991 to 1996, Osama bin Laden saw himself as
4: a totally different guy. It was, uh, in some ways, one of the happiest times in his life.
6: I mean, he, after the end of the Soviet war, In Afghanistan.
2: He'd fought in the Afghan war against the Soviet Union. Working with the CIA. He'd squabbled with the Saudi government over their decision to let U.S. troops into the country. Got kicked out of Saudi Arabia. And when he shows up in Sudan, bin Laden, who by this point is 34 years old, has four wives, 13 children, had a thought that maybe he wasn't going to go back to fighting. Maybe he was ready for a new phase of his life here in Sudan as a nation builder just like his dad. You see, back in Saudi Arabia, the older bin Laden had been this huge construction tycoon.
6: His father was extremely wealthy and had been killed in a plane crash. And um, as one of 17 sons, he was entitled to a sizable share of his father's estate. So he arrived in Sudan with a huge Amount of money,
2: and he was determined to use at least some of that money to help the Sudanese government develop their country.
6: They were promising him huge contracts to build roads, and there were lots of opportunities because Sudan was not as it was kind of several years behind where Saudi Arabia was. Osama's father had sort of built Saudi Arabia, so he now thought, well, I'm going to build Sudan. He was in his mind building a perfect Islamic society,
2: Hmm. and literally building it. He built massive roads and bridges.
6: Swimming pools, houses, whatever it was needed.
2: There's this interview, the first one bin Laden ever did with the Western media. It was published in the UK paper The Independent in 1993. The headline says, Anti-Soviet warrior puts his army on the road to peace. In it, the journalist Robert Fisk asks bin Laden after fighting the Russians, is it not anticlimactic for you and your fellow fighters to end up building roads in Sudan? Bin Laden scoffs, saying that he's a construction engineer. This is what he wants to do, not for profit, but to help local Muslims to improve their lives. Now, as for the farm, how
4: that enters the picture. The government didn't have any money to pay him, so they gave him land.
6: Which is why he ended up having a farm, the Damazin farm.
2: The Damazin farm was about 300 miles southeast of Khartoum, near the Ethiopian border.
6: It was out in the middle of nowhere. Um, there was nothing there at all when he was first given the land,
2: but it was a part
4: of the country that was verdant and green. Sudan is a wonderfully fertile country, and and uh, Bin Laden really had the idea it could feed the world if it were properly organized, and and he's right. He he raised cattle and horses, and there was corn and sesame
2: and fava beans, watermelon, all sorts of things. But the crop that was the most important to
6: him was his sunflowers. His wife Nadja said he was obsessed with growing. Um, the biggest sunflower heads that that existed in the whole world.
4: Oh, wow. He thought that his sunflowers should be in the Guinness Book of World Records. What? Yeah, he was very proud of his sunflowers.
2: And Damazine Farm brought his whole family joy.
6: He took his family down there at weekends, and they had a swimming pool down there and horses down there that they could ride occasionally when it was um, harvesting of sunflowers time. Yeah they would come down from um, Khartoum because they still lived in Khartoum. And all of the the employees from Damazine Farm would be kind of sent away out, out of the the whole area so that the wives and the kids could get out pairs of scissors and come out into the fields and cut down sunflowers for a few hours. Ah. It's a nice thing to do when you're stuck in the house most of the time to get outside and take your veil off
2: And this brings us back to Abdul Latif Nasser.
5: He was the sunflower man, so.
2: <laughs> so after that interview with Shelby, I went back to the U.S. government's declassified file on Abdul Latif Nasser and looked back over what it said about his time in Sudan. It didn't mention sunflowers, but it did say that he worked for two years as a production overseer.
5: Managing, sort of, from above, um, making sure people had enough resources and enough people on the field and,
2: so it seems to possibly match her story. But then it made me wonder, what else was happening at that farm? How often would Osama bin Laden just stop by? Did they ever meet? Did they ever talk? What did they talk about? How did, how did he get the job to begin with? This is a bookish guy from the city. No agricultural experience at
4: all. How did he wind up there? Well... Khartoum is, you know, a, a modest-sized city.
2: Lawrence Wright suggests that he was probably looking for a job, and he did what people looking for a job in Khartoum do. Maybe he got a recommendation. Maybe he just wandered downtown.
4: If you go to downtown Khartoum and you walk along mecca Nimmer Street, um, that was the street where uh, Wadi al the bin
3: Laden holding company, was. You know, the, the mother of all companies. Suleiman Baldo again. You could not miss the houses. You could not miss the companies. He, he, he was visible for, for everyone. And uh, if you were walking down that street and you were
4: talking to someone, you know, where do I find a job? Uh, they say, well, walk over there and knock on the door. So presumably that's what he did.
2: He walked up to the door... Knocked and then applied right would would bin Laden have interviewed every person who worked for him or no? He was not that kind of bosser. Or... Uh, well,
0: uh, so every case is different. This
2: is Wesley Wark. He's a Canadian academic.
0: My specialization has been in the fields of national security issues, including terrorism. I'm not familiar with what might be known about Mr. Nasser's involvement in in Sudan. But yeah, um bin Laden himself personally interviewed the sort of key leadership and
2: management. What a weird job interview that must have been. (laughs) I actually later found testimony from someone else who worked on that farm, who said that Osama bin Laden preferred to interview job candidates himself for roles on the farm all the way down to assistant managers, which could have included Abdul Latif Nasser.
1: Please answer the required information accurately and truthfully. You can
2: actually find uh, online this job application To be fair, it's not for the farm. It's an Al-Qaeda job application.
1: Today's date, nickname, father's name, alias, grandfather's
2: name. He probably didn't fill out this particular application.
1: Education level, primary, elementary, secondary.
2: But it's weirdly corporate.
1: List the experience or expertise that you have in any area. What's your favorite material, science or literature?
2: But by all
0: accounts...
1: Please answer in the language you know.
0: What these job interviews were about. Please
1: write clearly and legibly.
0: Was, was not really technical competence ar- around whatever particular function Bin Laden wanted to see a person occupy. They apparently were interviews around...
1: How much of the Holy Quran have you memorized?
0: Approaches to Islam and...
1: Did you study Sharia? Who was your instructor?
0: Religious and ideological purity. What
1: ideas and views do you, your family, and your other acquaintances have about jihad in Allah's sake here?
0: Huh. So they were being a- assessed in that light that can be cast to suggest that anybody who went through that process and and passed that interview must have been, you know, by definition, committed to jihad. Huh. I'm not so convinced by that. Wesley Wark
2: has another idea.
0: I mean, the thing to keep in mind is, again, Sudan's a very poor country. It didn't have much of a managerial or professional class. So bin Laden, as he embarked on this commercial empire building in Sudan, this state within a state, was, you know, desperate to um, hire people with some professional qualifications. Even if it was a silly kid, in Nasser's case, with a bit of a university education, that mm. still would have made him stand out perhaps from many of the people that would be available to, to assist bin Laden in mm. in many of these enterprises in Sudan, given the dire poverty of Sudan's state and, and economy.
2: So it's like you're looking at the waiting room outside of that job interview, and you're like, "Okay, that's my guy. That's he looks like management material at least, yeah, you know, compared to everybody else." Got who's some in university yeah.
0: education. Probably well spoken, uh, capable of of managing and organizing. Right. You know, who knows? But, but all of that kind of thing could go through your mind to make it less suspicious that a city kid would find himself working on a farm in Sudan.
2: <laughs> um, you should be a lawyer, I think. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so whether it's because he was personally suited or ideologically primed or just the best of the bunch who showed up, Abdul Latif Nasser lands this job on Osama bin Laden's farm. Now, one of bin Laden's former associates wrote that for those years they were in Sudan, quote, Al-Qaeda was 99% a construction and
4: agriculture company. But about that other 1%, He loved being this, you know, uh, plantation owner and, you know, having this vast holdings. And, you know, he loved imagining himself as this great international businessman. Yeah. At the same time, he missed the the thrill of combat and uh, the aura that surrounded him as the great Muslim warrior. So while he presented a public face of being the warrior on the road
2: to peace, Behind the scenes, he was funding and encouraging violent actions
3: abroad in places like Somalia, Algeria, Egypt, Yemen. There are incidents in which the companies were a cover for military jihadist agenda in multiple countries of the Arab Islamic world. However, I'm not sure that each and every individual who worked in these different companies or farms would be by necessity a fighter or a jihadist.
2: But what about Abdul Latif
3: Nasser? For those approximately
2: two years that he was on Osama bin Laden's payroll...
5: Managing, sort of, from above.
2: um, Was Abdul Latif just working a normal, boring desk job? Or was he in on it? I started to dig, to research the company, to research the farm. And the deeper I dug, the more evidence I found. But the more evidence I found, the more I swung back and forth. So let's start on the most basic level. How big was this Osama bin Laden company, Wadi al Well, it was massive. Around that time, it had about 10,000 employees. American companies now in that same ballpark, Netflix, Reebok, Wendy's. So this is a big company. And, uh, you know, there were different enterprises. And it wasn't even really one company. It was a cluster of companies. Uh, The Al-Hijra Construction Company, the al Kudurat Shipping Company, a tannery, a bakery, an investment bank, even the al iklas Candy Company. Who knew Osama bin Laden owned a candy company? There were at least two agricultural companies. One was called the Blessed Fruit Company, and they were pretty big as well. And as for the Damazine farm? It appeared to
0: employ about... My recollection is there were about 4,000 people. Which which is a considerable workforce for a farm.
2: Huge. And the reason they had so many employees was that the farms, and in particular the Damazine farm, were enormous.
4: Well, I don't know exactly how big each one of them was. One of them, he said, was bigger than the uh, United Arab Emirates.
2: Oh, my God. That would be roughly the size of the state of South Carolina. So, you know, they were considerable size. And not only that, the Domasin Farm was several hours drive from the company's headquarters in Khartoum. And this is in the 90s in Sudan. So pre-video conferencing, pre-internet. So huge company, huge farm, super remote. So, so far, it feels like blaming someone who works on this farm for being in Al-Qaeda feels like blaming someone behind the counter at your local Wendy's for what the CEO believes or does in his spare time at corporate headquarters. Well,
0: I must confess, it goes back a number of years. But Wesley
2: Wark actually be... told me the story of a different guy, an um, Egyptian guy, yeah. who worked a job just like Abdul Latif's at that same Sudanese farm the year before Abdul Latif started working there.
0: Uh, a particular individual by the name of Mohammed Zeki Majub.
2: Uh, Majub's story is actually very similar to Abdul Latif's story. He was a foreigner in Sudan, couldn't find a job, ends up interviewing with Osama bin Laden. They do an hour and a half or two-hour interview where he claims bin Laden never even brought up religion. Majub gets the job and then spends a year overseeing not just the irrigation and cultivation of what he says is a million-acre farm, but also managing 4,000 workers who reported directly to him. According to this guy Majub. In that year-long stretch, he only met bin Laden three times. And each time it was totally mundane, just reporting on day-to-day operations, that kind of thing. But then later, this guy, Mohammed Zeki Majoub, would face deportation hearings in Canada, in large part for having that job in Sudan. It, it gets into that gray area of kind of guilt by association. The argument seems kind of thin. That is until you realize who else worked at the farm.
7: At like a big farm, especially like Damazin, you're gonna see a lot of veterans of the Afghan war because that's who was employed in these places.
2: Again, former CIA analyst Cynthia Storer
7: a lot of Arabs and Arab types. So,
2: so like, if I'm at one of these businesses, or at, if I'm at Wadi Aqiq at the Damazine Farm, and there's, they call a staff meeting, and I'm, like, looking around the table at who's here, who, who am I looking at?
7: I mean, you're probably looking at people from a lot of different nationalities and radical groups. You could be, you know, I'm the manager of X, but I also attend or run a training camp.
2: Thanks to the later testimony of an Al-Qaeda guy who worked in the business... We have a pretty good estimate of how many of the 4,000 farm employees were actually members of al-Qaeda.
0: Of that workforce, about 500 people were actual al-Qaeda members.
2: Okay, so the majority of the people on this farm were just doing farm jobs. But about one in eight were likely affiliated with al-Qaeda. Okay, so now you might think this looks kind of suspicious again. But it turns out these violent revolutionary al-Qaeda guys working on this farm, they were very, very quiet. They thought of themselves as a clandestine and elite group. They wouldn't just let anyone in. And given who Abdul Latif was, on paper it seems like he was much more likely to be one of the majority of civilian employees rather than one of the minority of al-Qaeda plotters and fighters hidden amongst them.
6: I I totally believe that
2: journalist Cathy Scott Clark again.
6: I mean if he's got no previous military experience he's never trained in an al-Qaeda camp he's never no, been no he has he's never fought in Afghanistan then then there's absolutely no way he is going to be um, let into any any details about any kind of military training at the farm um, and the mujahideen fighters would have kept totally separate from any civilian employees
4: Interesting. Huh. You know, to support that position, I reached out to Ali Sufan, the FBI agent who interrogated so many people, and he wasn't really familiar with him. Uh, and then I asked Muhammad Ali uh the uh, business manager of, of bin Laden's enterprises in Sudan, and he said to me that, uh, he, you know, it, it didn't ring a bell.
2: Also, Osama bin Laden had a personal secretary while he was in Sudan, a guy named Wadi al-Hajj. Uh, That personal secretary had a phone book at the time. We managed to get a copy, looked up Abdul Latif's
4: name, and did not find it. So it could be that he was just a low-level employee.
6: Kind of sort of sitting in a dusty office outside the field, and the people who get paid $200 a month come and clock in to him every morning, and he makes sure that they're doing their jobs properly. That doesn't mean that he's a senior al-Qaeda character at all.
2: There's actually some basis for this point in a declassified summary of a U.S. military interrogation of Abdul Latif in 2004. In the report, it says, quote, When asked if Osama bin Laden ever spoke directly to Nasser, Nasser related his only interaction with Osama bin Laden was to share greetings when they would pass by each other. Nasser stated that he was unsure if Osama bin Laden knew his name during that time in Sudan. During that same interrogation, according to the report, Abdul Latif claimed that it wasn't until the end of his two years working in Sudan that he realized that such a thing as Al-Qaeda existed and that Osama bin Laden and all these guys working around him who fought with bin Laden in Afghanistan were part of it. Now, granted, that could all be a lie. It could be a faulty memory. It could be a falsehood elicited through torture. But it does seem possible. You know, like every TV news interview of a neighbor who's like, I had no idea what was going on next door. But that makes me wonder, what were these Al-Qaeda guys on this farm actually doing?
6: But one one thing I haven't said, which I should say, is, is <clears throat> that there was um, a small area in a far-flung part of the farm where he did kind of put together this sort of little, what they called the al-Qaeda refresher course.
0: Oh, wow. al Damasin Farm, very, very large farm. Mm. A portion of that farm, the northern reaches of it, were given over to what was called refresher training in firearms and explosives use by certain al-Qaeda recruits.
6: I mean, a lot of Mujahideen had come from Pakistan with him or had arrived subsequently to him, him arriving in Sudan because they had nowhere else to go. And so to stop them going crazy, because they've trained as fighters, they had these little refresher courses which were run at Damazine.
2: So the Damazine farm wasn't just a pretty field of watermelons and sunflowers. Then again, this was a farm the size of a small U.S. state And the training camp was supposedly tucked away in the very northern edge. Do you think it would have been possible, I mean, just based on what you, your previous knowledge, do you think it would have been possible to work there and not know about that stuff? No. Huh. Absolutely not. Huh.
7: There are other places you could work and not know. You could work for some charitable organizations, like big international ones, and not know that a particular office was full of jihadis because they might do all their mm-hmm. bad business in the back room, right?
2: Right, right.
7: But you couldn't be a domicile and not know. How does she know that?
2: I'm not sure. I I'm, I, need to go uh, go back and check.
6: I mean, how uh, many people has she interviewed who actually lived in that at, at that place at that time who, who right. are not being tortured and will say anything to get you to stop?
2: Right, right. We went back to Cynthia Store to ask her how she did know that. The answer was that it's classified. Coming up, Abdul Latif leaves his job at the farm, or actually his job at the farm leaves him.
0: Hi, this is Matt from San Jose, California. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
2: I'm Latif Nasser. This is The Other Latif. And now the story of how these two men with three names leave the farm with sunflowers
4: behind. Towards the end of Bin Laden's time in Sudan, uh, America began to get uh, upset about what he was up to. This is journalist Lawrence Wright again, and they suspected that his money was behind a lot of uh, different terrorist groups, which it was. He was funding, for instance, uh, uh, the Islamist group in the uh, the Algerian civil war, you know, trying to uh, stir up the Somali situation. You know, his family disowned him because he was attacking the king. That would be the king of Saudi Arabia. And the family, and I think the royal family, sent Jamal Khashoggi, who is a very prominent journalist who wow. knew bin Laden and had been his friend. Wow. They sent him to Sudan to, uh, to try to uh, get him to renounce violence. Wow! So Jamal, uh, he was friendly enough with bin Laden that they could sit down and have dinner. And every night that Jamal was in Khartoum, every night, of course, was lamb. They would sit on the floor and eat with their fingers, as is the Bedouin custom. And uh, the very first night, bin Laden told Jamal that he was opposed to violence. This is not the way we need to achieve our goals. And Jamal said, I have my tape recorder. Uh, Just say that uh, publicly publicly. And uh, mm-hmm. you will be forgiven. You will be able to return to the, to the kingdom. Bin Laden said, maybe tomorrow. So Jamal came back the next day, and Bin Laden didn't want to talk about it. And he came back one more day and said, uh, you know, Osama, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow. You know, if you want to make this statement, I'll be in the Hilton. And Bin Laden never made the call.
2: June 26, 1995, there's an assassination attempt against the Egyptian president. Al-Qaeda is blamed.
4: And pressure began to be put by the American government on the Sudanese government. And then finally, the Sudanese government uh, uh, decided to uh, agree with the Americans and drive him out of the country.
2: On May 18, 1996, Osama bin Laden, his family members, and some of his closest allies board a plane
4: and flee Khartoum. Bin Laden, when he was booted out, he had to leave, you know, really quickly.
2: What did they leave hanging there in in Sudan, if you know?
6: Curtains. (laughs) Um, Everything. I mean, Najwa, the, the first, the most chatty, friendly wife, I mean, she says they were told they could only pack one suitcase each. So everything that they've had in the houses, um, furniture, everything, just one suitcase each. And, and, and she says that the plane was kind of segregated with, with curtains so that all the wives and children of Azama, plus the wives of Mujahideen fighters who were returning with him, all kind of sat behind the black curtain. Mm-hmm. The men sat in another section of the plane. and And the women, I don't know about the men, but the women didn't know where they were going.
4: Bin Laden was chased out of Sudan, one of the great diplomatic goofs of our history. His land uh, was simply confiscated along with his machinery and so on, his factories. I think part of what caused Bin Laden to decide just a few months after to declare war on America is essentially he held America responsible for Uh... forcing the Sudanese to get rid of him. So the Sudanese, after stealing everything they could, flew him out of there to Afghanistan and uh, the al-Qaeda as we know it was born. So now
2: here's one of the most perplexing parts of the story, and it's where Abdul Latif comes back in. He wasn't on that plane. According to declassified U.S. government documents, one day Abdul Latif went from his job on the farm to go to the company headquarters in Khartoum to pick up his monthly paycheck. And when he gets there, he realizes everyone's just gone. He didn't know bin Laden had left. He just got left behind.
6: I would imagine just to picture what happens when when Nasser sort of goes up to find out why he's not been paid is that that there'll just be empty offices, kind of (laughs) windows flapping open. I mean, nothing nothing there. Everyone's gone. Everyone's cleared out on one day.
4: Wow there were probably a lot of people like Nasser uh, who went in to get their paycheck and found that their boss was no longer there. If you read the leaked government documents, they say that Abdul Latif Nasser was supposedly
2: one of Osama bin Laden's top military advisors. Was he? He definitely doesn't seem like he was at this point. Certainly not important enough to have been on that plane. But this isn't the end of the story. A little over a year later, Abdul Latif would once again be in the same country as Osama bin Laden, where allegedly he, Abdul Latif, caused all kinds of trouble. In the next episode, we come to the decisive moment. We
4: came in and we threw a blue 82 at them. ABC's Dan Harris reports now from the front line. A 16,000 pound device was dropped. U.S. fighter planes
0: and B 52s dropped their payload.
2: Where Abdul Latif Nasser actually comes into focus. You know, and at a certain point, it was as if he had decided to just tell the truth. For the first time. This episode was produced by Susie Lechtenberg, Sarah Kari, and me, Latif Nasser, with help from Niza Nando. Fact-checking by Diane Kelly and Margot Williams. Editing by Jad Abumrad and Soren Wheeler. Original music by Jad Abumrad, Alex Overington, Jeremy Bloom, and Amino Belliani. Next episode, one week from today.
7: This is Lena Abella Saunders from Temecula, California. Radiolab is created by Jab Abu Murad with Robert Kulwich and produced by Soren Wheeler. Dylan Keefe is our Director of Sound Design. Susie Lechtenberg is our Executive Producer. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, David Gebel, Bethel Hapti, Tracy Hunt, Matt Kilty, Annie McEwan, Latif Nasser, Sarah Kari, Ariane Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster, with help from Shima Oliai, W. Harry Fortuna, Sarah Sambach, Melissa O'Donnell, Tad Davis, and Russell Gregg. Our fact checker is Michelle Harris.